Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Commons People, the HuffPost politics podcast. With me, Owen Bennett, Paul War, Ned Simons and Graham Demonick. This week we'll be talking about the government's U-turn on refugees, the SATS exams, Trumpy McTrump face and today's local elections. Let's start with the refugees. David Cameron has signalled a major U-turn over child refugees as he revealed he would no longer block plans to taking youngsters from across Europe. Bowing to huge pressure from his own MPs, the House of Lords and many charities, the Prime Minister confirmed the government would accept a proposal to allow councils to find homes for unaccompanied children in EU refugee camps. Just one week after vowing not to budge on the issue, Cameron announced the government would now accept the amendment from Labour's Lord Dubs. Here he is announcing the change in policy in PMQs on Wednesday. I do reject the comparison with the Kinder Transport, and for this reason... I would argue that what we are doing primarily, which is taking children from the region, taking vulnerable people from the camps, going to the neighbouring countries and taking people into our country, housing them, clothing them, feeding them, making sure they can have a good life here, that to me is like the kinder transport. To say that the kinder transport is taking today children from France or Germany or Italy, safe countries that are democracies, I think... I think that is an insult to those countries. But as I've said, because of the steps that we're taking, it won't be necessary to send the Dubs amendment back to the other place. The amendment doesn't now mention a number of people. We're going to go round the local authorities and see what more we can do. But let's stick to the principle that we should not be taking new arrivals to Europe. Tory MP Heidi Allen was one of those prepared to vote against the government in order to get them to change their position. Here she is on Newsnight on Wednesday explaining why youngsters in Europe need help from the UK. And this is where, on the face of it, yes, you think it's all Europe, it must be safe. But, you know, I visited Calais and Lesbos, as many MPs have, and there is anything but safety there. The European countries, Greece in particular, will be the first to admit economically they're on their knees, not in a state to deal with this level. Some days, seven, eight thousand people were coming per day. It's chaos. Um, They can't cope. And there's some pretty nasty stuff that happens to children that are not safeguarded and nobody's protecting them. And that's why I do feel we have a responsibility, as every European country has, to join forces, come together and work through this and identify the children that each of us can take. I mean, Paul, you have been across this all week. So just why, a week after saying, you know, there's going to be no movement on this at all, is the government now, has the government now decided to take in refugee, child refugees from Europe? Well, obviously, the main driver is the sheer maths involved, and the electoral calculus was dead against the Prime Minister. Not only has he got an anti-Tory majority in the Lords, but he had a significant number of Tory backbenchers who were changing their minds within a week. They'd come under massive pressure, those who'd abstained previously, to actually vote for the Dubs Amendment. And the reason they did that is because, let's be honest, although the government was making a very logical case about, you know, that we don't want to encourage people traffickers to send these kids unaccompanied uh, across this 
perilous journey across the, the Mediterranean. Although it made the logical case, it didn't make the emotional case. And the emotional case for a lot of those Tory MPs was obvious. Look at the pictures of the kids that we've seen. With, as Heidi Allen quite rightly said, they've seen them with their own eyes. They've been there. Um, and it just seemed obvious that there was a moral imperative here at work, not just you know a calculated, desiccated sort of decision by, by Whitehall. I was speaking to a couple of Tory MPs yesterday, some of whom backed the government's original position. And when they heard this U-turn in the air, they hold on a minute, we've gone out to back it for the government defending this. They're going to U-turn, we're going to be left high and dry. But actually, they quite liked what the government did because it was quite clever because they managed to straddle the idea of helping children in Europe without encouraging more to come. And that's the key point, isn't it, to keep both sides happy? That, that's, that's why it's been a really difficult set of negotiations. You know, at one point, there were four different versions of, of the plan, the compromise plan, to make sure that the, the government squared those people that you've talked to who were worried about this pull factor and the rebels who were worried about the image of the Tory party overall looking on caring. And it's all about the long-term damage to the compassionate Conservative brand. Don't forget, that's really what's at stake here. Um, and yeah, those, that compromise does work because it time limits it and it only restricts it to three countries. I mean, it, it's always a telltale sign that number 10 uh, are worried when they, they announced the detail of a policy after the Prime Minister's hinted at it in, during PMQs. Yeah. And it was only an hour later we found out actually this is only about Greece, it's only about France and it's only about Italy. Um, yet the Prime Minister had said all those countries were safe places, so he had to contradict himself. And these children are children that have already got family links here? Is that how they're going to do That's this? That's the other you know, <coughs> key caveat. They've got to have some loose family connection in Britain. But lots of them do. I mean, the point that he's making is that the, the kinder transport analogy is that at the time of the kinder transport, the most dangerous place was mainland Europe. Now the most dangerous place are the refugee camps in Syria. So he's saying if you want to recreate kinder transport, then that's the logical way to do it. Actually, just recreating the actual physical journey isn't actually going to Yeah, do but you can do both. I mean, that's what the Tory rebels and Labour peers have been arguing. It's not either or. You, of course, it's great to take kids from the camps in Syria, but also there was the kids unaccompanied, <coughs> on their own, uh, at risk of abuse and worse, um, in, in camps in Europe, and that's why Save the Children have, have actually pulled a, uh, a, played a blinder in this. They've, they've encouraged the government to get to the place where they can work with them. Is there a party political point here that, again, this wasn't brought up by Corbyn in PMQs? He was, he was, um, he was on, on a number of other different areas, but, but, but not refugees, which is clearly where the government were, were very weak. It was, this is something that's been led by Labour in the Lords, by Lord Dubbs, a, a, a Labour peer, an ex- Labour MP, but 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 Jeremy Corbyn hasn't kind of seized the seized the initiative on it. It doesn't seem. Well, I think that's that's. I mean, there's a lot of some people close to Jeremy Corbyn who think he did make a mistake actually not going in on it last week. Never mind this yeah. week. Um, and it just seems such an obvious open goal. If the government, we all knew from the day before. I bumped into Jeremy Corbyn actually straight after the lobby briefing on Tuesday. Why? Name dropping. When when the government when the government announced this, um, you know, through the usual channels of, of the lobby briefing, they gave the classic hint of look, we're going to look closely again at this issue. We want to get this bill on the statute book and we're going to listen to all sides. It was obvious from the mood music on Tuesday lunchtime that the government was shifting. So I bumped into Jeremy Corbyn in the House Commons and he was his usual genial self um, and he was very excited by the idea that actually Labour had made some real change in policy. Um, unfortunately, yeah, that, yeah. Um, it, that didn't materialise the next day in PMQs and actually there was no Labour reaction to this anticipated U-turn at all for the whole of Tuesday, which I found very, very strange. And it allowed um, Angus Robertson, <coughs> the SNP leader, to, to 
kind of steal the show, didn't it? Because he asked about it at PMQs, Corbyn didn't, so he got the kind of praise. There's something it. gone wrong there where Corbyn himself actually saw the opportunity and, you know, he's been to the camps himself, you know, he put his neck on the line, got a lot of abuse from some people for actually going to the camps. And yet, and so we know where he is on it, yet somehow some people around him said, no, don't go on that. And, and, if, he'd got, and if he'd gone on refugees, it could have, given, and we might go on to PMQs later, it would have given him... Or it would give him the space for Cameron not to attack him on on the issues that it did attack him on to do with anti-Semitism and and all the kind of. He could have know, appeared the, above this all. Right, exactly. It you know, would have brought actually, Cameron yeah. down to to, to to a kind of cross-party level. But again, or it was, not to a cross-party level. Well, yeah, quite. Um, but but he didn't see that as <coughs> the opportunity to do that, which again, a bit of an open open goal missed. Let's move on to SATs now. Uh, parents protested over the SATs exams for six and 11-year-olds this week, with many taking their children out of school on Tuesday. More than 45,000 of them signed a petition calling for a boycott of the tests set to be taken later this month. The Let Our Kids Be Kids campaign encouraged parents to keep the kids off school, saying they are, quote, over-tested, overworked and in a school system that places more importance on test results and league tables than children's happiness and joy of learning. Parents who took the kids off in the protest opted for a day of educational fun instead. And just to prove how difficult these tests are, here is Schools Minister Nick Gibb failing a SATS question, question live on air. And this is a question for slightly older children, for 11-year-olds, about the use of the word after. So um, let me give you this sentence. I went to the cinema after I'd eaten my dinner. Is the word after there being used as a subordinating conjunction or as a preposition? Well, it's a preposition. After is a preposition. It can be used in some context <laughs> well, as a, uh, well, as a, as a uh, word that sentence. coordinates a sub a, a, a subclause, but this isn't about no, me. Uh, David Cameron was not immune from the test, and here is Green MP Caroline Lucas putting some questions to him in PMQs. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. For the benefit of the House and for 10- and 11-year-olds up and down the country, will the Prime Minister explain what the past progressive tense is? Will he differentiate between a subordinating conjunctive and a coordinating conjunctive? And finally, will he set out his definition, please, of a modal verb? Yeah. I have to say to the Honourable Lady that the, the whole point of these changes is to make sure our children are better educated than, than we are. So much for an Etonian education there. We are joined now by Amy Packham, who's a parents writer here at HuffPost UK, who's been keeping abreast of this issue. Hello, Amy. Hello. Um, this seemed to me to sort of come from nowhere. I sort of woke up one day, put on the radio, and apparently, like, kids were going to go like protesting and I was like yeah. what's going on yeah so we um, interviewed the founders of Let Kids Be um, Kids campaign in it was like the 20th of April and it hadn't really been spoken about or really reported on um, they're a group of year two parents who wanted to re- remain anonymous and they didn't want to get any teachers involved they didn't want to say what school they're from and they said they have started this petition and three weeks time they wanted everyone to protest and at the time they wanted 25,000 signatures and there was about 10,000 um, and in the end they put it up to they wanted 50,000 signatures and I think on bun- on the day there was about 49,000 so in, a, in like three weeks I think they did get a good 30,000 people sign and I think when the story started going out into the press there was a lot of people who had really strong views or like for and against like there were a lot of parents saying there's no pressure on my kids it's the parents putting pressure on the kids or it's the teachers or it's the schools and then other people wanted like completely agreed and wanted their kids to have a day out of school and um I think some teachers even agreed so they yeah they they took them out of school on Tuesday. Surely it's more pressure because as a seven-year-old 
He says, thinking back to that when it was, you know, Not that long a week ago, ago. Yeah. Yeah. ten years ago. <laughs> but you know, you, you you derive what is pressure from your parents, and if your parents are going around saying, "Oh, there's a lot of pressure. We're going to take you out of school of this," isn't that putting more pressure on them? Surely this is actually a test of what the schools are doing and not what uh, not what the kids learn. It was that sort of arguments are being floated. Yeah. So pe- the ones that um, disagreed with people taking their kids out were saying, "There's no pressure on my child." Like the school aren't putting pressure on my child so if there is pressure then it's parents saying to their child you've got this test this test coming out oh my god the school like all things like that and they were saying it's no, nothing to do with the children like having the problem it's the parents in the schools having the problem sort of putting it on their ch- um, children so that that was I would say there was quite a big split between the people that agreed and didn't so when we put the story up there was a lot of um, parents sort of talking to each other on Facebook and disagreeing with each other and yeah, it is very divisive. Split, I mean, yeah. I've got the distinct advantage of having children at primary school and who are going through this process at the moment. Did you uh, take them out? Uh, no, um, but my my son actually is it is not at that stage where the the protest took place, which was for the actually for the for the seven year olds, wasn't it? Yeah, it, year it two. wasn't for the for the year tens who are actually going to take them next week, which is a much tougher exam. And the, the questions you've heard, you know, the sort of stuff that Caroline Lucas and Nick Gibb were talking about, they're, they're the questions that are being pitched at the 10-year-olds, you know, this complicated stuff about grammar. But the, the issue about the 7-year-olds, actually, um, I can sympathise with a lot of those parents because, again, the grammar, the, the sort of stuff that kids are being asked to learn is stuff that we've never uh, obviously learned, and certainly David Cameron hasn't. And we're all journalists around here. We know to write clearly, I hope. We know to express ourselves clearly, and yet we don't know all these grammatical terms like subjunctive clauses, etc. Um, and has it done any, any harm? Has it done any harm whatsoever? I suspect not. And Is that one page so little? <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, there, there's no question, as Amy says, that, it, that some parents were dead against the protest. I can see why. You know, there's a danger here where the pendulum swings far too far and you get the sort of hippie-type parents who just want to have their kids hugging a tree for a day. Most parents aren't like that. Most parents actually are quite sensible. They don't mind their kids being tested, but it's what are they being tested. And actually, it's true that the joy of learning is being sucked out of kids at primary school. There's no question. I've got personal experience of it. That they're, They're just being asked to sit exams constantly, particularly in the final year, and they're going to get jaded by the whole experience. Speaking of getting jaded by the whole experience, yeah. this week's quiz. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Perfect segue. I've got some prizes for this week's quiz as well. Prizes. And he's yeah. getting something out of his pocket. It's... it's it's what is that? For, for, for people watching in black and white... Uh, this is um, <laughs> I mean, 500... Owen has produced... 500 um, Gambian Dalassis. That's a, that's a currency. Oh, it's a currency. Yeah. Uh, which it's a hard or soft currency, I mean. Uh, it's, I found it on the chip bot. <laughs> <laughs> I found it on the chip this morning. I hope this is it's going somewhere. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And Have I looked it up. Police? Yeah, I didn't know to give it to you. So it's worth like, 100 is worth like 60p. I think you're committing a legal act here. Am I? Yeah. But I thought I'd give it away. What's it got to do with the quiz? Nothing. But it just prizes. <laughs> the quiz. Oh, that's is, the prize. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Okay. All right. <laughs> okay. Here we go. I don't know what else to do with it. <laughs> Get on with it. Just right. get on with it, yeah. Right, the quiz. It's SATS questions. Ah. Of course it is. That's a good quiz. Right. Amy. Oh, it's single people out. Oh, no, no, no. What type no, of word is cautiously in the following sentence? Cautiously, Graham picked up my newborn child. Is it a verb, a noun, an adverb, or an adjective? 
cautiously. Adverb. Correct. You get a hundred Ghanaian, <laughs> Gambian, yeah. whatever. Thanks. Oh, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. Graham. Yes. In the following sentence, is the word after used as, as a subordination conjunction? Sorry. Or a preposition? <laughs> Paul moved here after the end of the war. Um, a subordinating conjunction or a preposition? Yeah, subordinating conjunction. I no, think. it's a preposition. Is it? Yeah. Is it, so you I don't thought it was get. a modifying word. No. Uh, it's different. Uh, okay. Ned. Fail. What is the subordinate clause in the sentence? Ready? Ned's mum bought him a hairbrush so that he could brush his hair more often. <laughs> what is the subordinate clause in that sentence? Say it again. Ned's mum bought him a hairbrush so he could brush his hair more often. Often? So that he could brush his hair more often is the clause. Yeah. Yeah. So you get, I'll give you some money for that. Do I get no, a hairbrush? Be, yeah, well, okay, well, yeah, I get it. Can you cut me half the, half the bit of money? Paul, which sentence is written in the active voice? The book following Farage was returned to the library yesterday. The <laughs> Unread. <laughs> well, that's the passive voice, the, so whatever the, you're going to say next. The news the meeting voice. was held in the pub. The bad weather led to the cancellation. The Which, bad weather led to the cancellation. Is active. That is correct, Paul. You Thank get you. 100. Thank you very much. By the way, can I just say your first question was ungrammatical. You don't start a word with a, an adver- a sentence with an adverb. Don't ever get me ever get the government. This is a government thing. So <laughs> Where did you get the question from? Is, it's like saying hopefully, comma. Yeah, well, this is what I'm saying. This is what the kids are being taught. Anyway, go on. It's a sex question. <laughs> no, I thought you'd enjoy that, Chris Moore. Disappointed. Yeah. Everyone was feeling the pressure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's actual money up for grabs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That so was this week's quiz. That was this week's quiz, everyone. Um, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I've got 100. Don't even know what they are. That is actually really good. Anyway, look, this is not a good podcast. Anyway, so anyway, moving on, the government um, has received criticism for axing its mental health champion, Natasha Devon. Um, The Labour Party and teachers were among those to condemn the Department of Education's decision, which followed Devon's criticism of the testing in schools, arguing it was not a coincidence that that anxiety is the fastest growing illness in under-21s. Graham, you've been across this, so she basically trying to draw a link between the amount of testing that the kids are undergoing and an increase in mental health. Yeah, I mean, she's, Natasha Evans, she was appointed in August last year as the government's kind of um, a mental health czar, I suppose, a kind of, it's, it's a non-paid role, but her job is to kind of champion these issues and perhaps be somebody who looks and sounds a bit like a, a, a young person um, rather than a kind of boring middle-aged man in a in, in a suit. Um, and last week she um, made criticism of the testing um, of, of, of kids that we just talked about and made a link to not just that but, but all, sorts of, all sorts of things that young people go through and it's causing anxiety and, and the, the increase in anxiety among uh, uh, people under the age of 21 is the, is, is the, the fastest growing kind of illness was, was her point. So she made this statement which is fairly kind of critical of the government and then fast forward a week later and it's emerged that her position and, and I think DFE would dispute whether she's been sacked or, or axed to use the, the journalese words. But her, her, the role that she was in has been made redundant, obsolete, right. call it all, because they're appointing somebody else for a, for a wider kind of cross-government cross, cross role. So it looks, it looks a bit strange, people would say, that it comes just a, a, a week after being, being critical of a flagship government, government policy. Um, 
but um, uh, but the government would say that she hasn't been sacked as such. Amy, just want to see you finally. Are we in a danger here of wrapping our kids up in cotton wool, generational snowflake, all that kind of stuff? And actually, we're we're sort of over protecting them. Are you getting that sense from parents? Is there sort of a backlash coming now, or do parents really think that these things are going too far? Um, I would say it's with the, there's a, that split again of the parents who sort of say they need to they need to know that there's going to be tests and if the tests are taken away and there's not any pressure on it what well they they need they take exams and tests as they get older and in um, GCSEs and A-levels and uni so um, I think in that sense the parents are saying yeah you can't you can't just take them away because they're feeling too much pressure but um, maybe it's how the how they administer the tests or how what what the questions are if they are too much pressure um, yeah that's great. Thanks so much, Amy, for coming in. Much appreciated. Let's uh, move over across the pond now. Uh, Donald Trump became the presumptive Republican nominee for president on Wednesday after his final rival, John Kasich, dropped out of the race. Earlier in the week, the only person who seemed able to stop the Donald from getting the nomination, Ted Cruz, dropped out of the race after coming a distant second in the Indiana primary. Here is Ted making his concession speech. From the beginning, I've said that I would continue on as long as there was a viable path to victory. Tonight, I'm sorry to say, it appears that path has been foreclosed. Together, we left it all on the field in Indiana. We gave it everything we've got. But the voters chose another path. And so, with a heavy heart, but with boundless optimism for the long-term future of our nation, we are suspending our campaign. And here is the Donald actually praising Ted Cruz after he pulled out. I have to tell you that I've competed all my life, competitive person. All my life, I've been in competitions different competitions, whether it's sports or business or now for 10 months politics. And I have to tell you that I have met some of the most incredible competitors that I have ever competed against right here on the Republican Party. You know, we started off with that 17 number. And just so you understand, Ted Cruz, I don't know if he likes me or if he doesn't like me, but he is one hell of a competitor. He is a tough, smart guy. One hell of a guy. Uh, Ned, you've been across this. So Donald Trump, the current president, is now more likely... More likely. Not likely, but more more likely. That was classic Donald Trump there, praising Cruz. What he does is he kind of absolutely goes after his rivals. And once they drop out, as 16 other Republicans have. Remember, this is 16. Donald Trump has beaten former senators and current senators, former governors, current governors. All have had, you know, the amount of hours and years these people had in government. He's had none of that. He's beaten them all. 
Um, and now he's got the nomination. Technically, it can still get taken away from him at the convention, but I don't think that's going to happen. And if you look in, if we go back to 2012, when Mitt Romney lost, the Republican Party said, okay, to win next time, we need to appeal to ethnic minorities, to women, and to young people. They've just elected someone to be their nominee who, called Mexicans rapists, wants to ban all Muslims, makes fun of women all the time. You know, it's the complete opposite of what the establishment want and what they think they need to do to win. And I'd say they're right. I mean, he's up against Hillary Clinton, who's polling now about 10% ahead. Um, I, but the, she's still massively unpopular. She's massively right? unpopular. The Democrats are about to nominate someone who's extremely unpopular. So the GOP has gone and found someone who's even more unpopular than her, particularly with those groups that they need to win. So we're going to see a low. Do you think we'll see a low turnout then in the America? I mean. No, I think What's the response? Are they going to put a third? I mean, there's talk about the Republicans yeah. then putting in a, a, a effectively an independent candidate, but we'll have to support I, the yeah, I, I, think that's, I think that seems unlikely now. You have to look at who that would be. I mean, kind of an establishment Republican isn't going to want to potentially give up the party by going standing as an independent. Someone like Mike Bloomberg, the kind of former mayor of New York, was toying with the idea of running as an independent candidate earlier in the cycle to kind of try and knock Trump out. But I think he realised that could actually let Trump in because he'd take votes from Clinton as well. So I think we're now seeing, you know, the Stop Trump movement that Republican establishment had never really worked. You know, the fact that Ted Cruz, we just heard, was that other alternative, and they all hate him as well. So they're stuck with him now, and it's going to be extraordinary to watch all these Republicans who really, really hate Donald Trump, hate what he stands for, hate what he's doing to the party, now having to kind of rally behind him, or not, or just say silent. Well, Hillary Clinton's already done this. She's put together mm. an attack ad of all the stuff Republicans, other people yeah, are yeah. saying. He's been, called a, he's been called a con artist, vulgar person, a bully, makes people feel small, a phony, a race-baiting, xenophobic, religious bigot. And these are the nice things. And these people in his own party. Yeah. Right? <laughs> the stuff they said in public as well, those ones. So, But it's worth remembering why Trump did beat all those 16 other established candidates. Because he's got this sort of X factor with some voters, which is, you know, it's not just the celebrity appeal. And don't forget, we underestimate here, you know, it is like Alan Sugar running for office, this. This is, you know, it's a massive show in sure, the Alan States. Sugar wouldn't love that comparison, <laughs> but, yeah. no, but it is. It's a massive show in the States, you know, uh, the, the Apprentice, Apprentice yeah. which he presents. He's got a massive public persona out there. He's been around for a long time. He's seen by blue-collar workers as someone who creates jobs is a success and has this very, very simple boiled down message that he can make America successful. And I, you underestimate at your peril, and I think the Democrats do, his impact amongst those blue collar voters, maybe in Rust Belt states that, you know, Democrats have taken for granted for a long time. We're all assuming that the blacks and the Hispanics will turn out and, and women voters will, will kill Trump. But I, I, he's also I can of, see that lead of Hillary's narrowing. He's also kind of blown up the established Republican sort of party, what it stands for, particularly the kind of social conservative issues as well. I mean, someone like Ted Cruz, who he was supposed to be the outsider. He was the Tea Party candidate, the one that the establishment people hated in Washington. Not a single senator. They all absolutely despise him. But he was no longer the outsider. His kind of social conservatism isn't what Donald Trump's been saying. He's not socially as conservative as a lot of Republicans. He's totally changing what the top of the party now looks like and stands for, and he's won doing that as well. And as I remember, it wasn't Trump going nowhere in the primaries until he made his kind of shock and awe mm. um, speech about building the wall. I mean, that was that was seen as like a Hail Mary kind of pass, last attempt to get back into... What? Hail Mary pass. What's you, Hail Mary pass? L- last, minute, last minute of the game, just chuck a pass as high and as far as you can, hope what, somebody what in the... What sport are you talking about? American football. Oh, you God. must know. Sorry. You must know. I thought you were talking about a real game. Carry on. Um, you've put me from Australia now. Um, he, he, was, he was completely, he was completely at, out of it until that point. So um, write him off at your peril, I think, is the uh, bottom line. We have fun at um, 
Trump's expense, so did Barack Obama at the uh, correspondence dinner last week. Here's a clip. You know I've got to talk about Trump. Come on. We weren't just going to stop there. Come on. tonight. We had so much fun the last time. <laughs> and it is surprising. You've got a room full of reporters, celebrities, cameras, and he says no. Is this dinner too tacky for the Donald? <laughs> what could he possibly be doing instead? Is he at home eating a Trump steak? Tweeting out insults to Angela Merkel. Obama there having fun with Trump. And here is Stat of the Week time, Graham. No stat of the Week time. There's no jingle. Stat of the Week. Stat of the Week. Donald Trump is no stranger to a bit of late night tweeting. But did you know, and that's capped up, his account is, is number 247 in the worldwide rank of the most popular Twitter users with almost 8 million followers. He averages nine tweets a turnover page a day. The number one Twitter account is Katy Perry <laughs> with 88.1 million uh, followers. Um, listeners, there's a rude word that Owen has <laughs> inserted halfway through that stat, which I'm not going to read out because this is a family podcast. Anyway, next. Oh, it's it is becoming a stitch up now, isn't it? It's not, there's no pretense of it being. It, a stat that people might find useful. It's a, it's a, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right. You can emerge okay, with a okay. Joan Beadle like from put, with a beard, on, with a beard on, Have with a copper, yeah. And, <laughs> Keep yeah. this bit in. Right. Okay. Thanks for that stat of the week, there, Graham. Um, today is being billed by some as Super Thursday with a host of elections across the UK. There are votes for the Scottish Parliament, the Welsh Assembly, PCCs, mayors, 124 councils and two parliamentary by-elections. What we will know tomorrow, Friday, is the result of what has been one of the most vicious political campaigns in recent times, the London mayor election. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn said earlier this week his party wouldn't lose any council seats, but his chief advisor then clarified what he actually meant to say was pretty much no comment. Graham, you were in the huddle for this moment. If you just quickly talk through this bizarre moment when Jeremy Corbyn said the day before, we don't expect to lose any seats. Yeah. And his advisor, Seamus Milne, was very quick to say... Um, yes. Um, to correct, to clarify the, the, the comments of, of the leader, Jeremy Corbyn, um, saying that um, his, his, his comments were slightly misinterpreted. Right. The ones heard on TV yeah, and everywhere. Reported yeah. directly verbatim. It was a thick of it moment, right? Yeah, it was, it was deeply kind of um, Malcolm Sucker-esque. Okay, very um, quickly, what do Labour... I mean, listeners who will listen to this probably after you know the results, so you'll be able to tell whether this barrier has been met. But what is the, the kind of thinking that Labour needs to achieve in these elections in order for it to be a good result? Well, the, the, there is a kind of a dossier floating around the Labour Party put around by, shall we say, the kind of moderate stroke right of the party, suggesting that Labour should be bringing in um, around 400 seats, um, put, putting that number on. By comparison, in 2012, it increased the number of seats it had by um, 823. Um, so you're talking in the, in, in the hundreds of what Labour's supposed to be doing. 
In reality, the latest forecast has been they might end up losing seats and maybe losing seats into the into the hundreds. So it's going to be a real benchmark, really, in terms of how the Labour Party are doing. And it depends where they lose uh, councils. I think that's the. It's not just seats. What's much more damaging is the losing a whole council because it only takes a few seats to lose control of a council. So if they lose places like Dudley in the West Midlands, a classic Tory Labour marginal, other classic Tory Labour marginals, Southampton looks like they're going to lose, uh, Plymouth they may lose, Exeter, Croydon, Exeter has brand brand new um, boundaries which you know for the first time even Ben Bradshaw who had a very good result at the general election would be very worried if they if they lose that. So watch for, for where they lose, not just how many they lose, because if they lose in the south, those councils, it's, it's a long way back. I think also one to watch out for uh, is UKIP. If they do very well in Wales, they're predicted to get about six or seven seats. If they do that, you'll see a shift of power away from UKIP HQ in London to Wales, where they'll have a lot of representation. And possibly former Tory MP Neil Hamilton could be elected. And there's rumours that he would then use that as a base for which to launch a leadership for UKIP. Great times we live in. Donald Trump, Neil yeah. Hamilton, all the what, old names. What a, what a time to be <laughs> yeah. alive. Excellent. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And we'll leave you now with a clip of Keith Faz for It's His He standing up in the House of Commons with his Leicester City scarf on, asking the Prime Minister to put pressure on Gary Lineker to do match today in his underpants next season. During this amazing season, the local Leicester hero, Gary Lineker, thought the idea of Leicester winning was so far-fetched that he said if they did win, he would present match of the day in his underwear. As an Aston Villa supporter, and my commiserations to the Prime Minister on their season, does he agree that in politics, as well as in football, when you make a promise, you should keep it? Prime Minister. I absolutely agree. I've been watching um, everything Gary Lineker has said since. He's not quite answering the question, something that, of course, no one ever gets away with in this house. And so uh, I welcome what he said. Um, obviously, I hope it's just the start of him joining the blue team. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.